week, Michael was forced to take me to a party. I got some cake, but then we totally lost our heads when we watched Hereditary. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This, the podcast where we sacrifice our time to the dark gods of cinema. I'm Evan Toller Hickey, and with me as always, Michael Hansen and Chris DeShane. And today we are continuing our month of Scaretober with 2018's freaky, freaky, freaky scary movie, Hereditary. This uh, has been called often now one of the scariest movies ever made. Uh, Maybe taking the crown from The Exorcist. I've seen this movie after a lot of people told me it was the scariest movie they'd ever seen. But Michael and Chris, you two missed this. And I am curious how. Well, I actually never heard of this. Honestly, like I had never really heard of it at all. And even as we started to uh, watch it, I was like, wait, who's in it? Who's the, the cast? And I was blown away uh, who they, they managed to get into the, the lead role. So this was a complete uh, sleeper for me. Um, and a little bit of a spoiler. I'm really glad we watched it. But no, I had not heard anything about it uh, before getting into it. Chris, how about you? Yeah, I, um, I, I didn't see this when it came out. I came to this uh, when I saw uh, Midsommar uh, when it was on Netflix. And it was one of those movies that was popping up a lot. And then I looked up and I was like, okay, I'll give this a watch. Gave that a watch. And I was super duper impressed by that. That's the Ari Aster's uh, second film. Uh, and so when I looked it up and I then read some stuff about Hereditary being the super scary movie and I was gung ho to go watch it. But I decided for the goodness of us all that I wanted to save this bad boy for the podcast. So I've been holding off for a good eight or nine months uh, on watching this movie so that my genuine first reaction could be with the two of you. So I've kind of been holding off despite Aww. my enthusiasm for seeing it until I could uh, get it on on uh, on record uh, as being official with the, both of you. So, so uh, I, yeah, I mean, hey, uh, I, I we should have done a group watch so we could have held hands and um, jumped together, I guess. Evan, you, you've you've seen this, but like, is this something that is, you know, a mainstay for you, something that you've seen regularly? Well, no, because like you, Chris, I came to Hereditary um, kind of backwards in the Ari Aster filmography. I had seen Midsommar and went like, oh, this is really good. Like, this is interesting and it's weird and it has something to say and it's something I haven't seen in a long time. I won't say haven't seen before because, you know, I've seen Wicker Man and that really gets into this kind of similar folk horror vein. But a bunch of people, I feel like it may have been last year around Halloween, were like, Hereditary is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Have you seen it? And I was like, no. And I think about four or five people within the space of a couple of weeks were like, I can't believe you haven't seen Hereditary. You love horror movies. It is really, really scary. And so I watched it. And uh, yeah, I concur. This is a legitimately scary movie legitimately scary movie. And I think the the fascinating thing about this is, you know, Ari Aster is kind of known for making movies that just give you no hope. Uh, and he, every moment that you spend hoping for something, it, it is drained away from you. Uh, I actually even tracked down a few of his shorts uh, that he made, uh, which even in film school were similarly uh, kind of just absolutely hopeless, I guess. So he, ultimately. He's, he's the Thanos of, of the film world. It's yeah. inevitable. He just, <laughs> he just snaps away any, any hope you have of having a happy ending. Um, but that's ultimately how he wound up getting to um, hereditary. That's his first feature. He'd made some shorts. Uh, he made some in, in film school and then he made some for a 24, uh, which is one of those up and coming film studios. Though at this point they've won a best picture. So I don't know that I can say they're up and coming so much anymore is so much here, I guess. Uh, but he'd made some shorts for them and then um, graduated into making a, a, a full on feature length picture. And this is hereditary. So um, he'd originally pitched this idea as uh, a family drama. Um, but when he was pitching it, like there's the script and everything, but he he didn't lean into horror because he was essentially 
done I, i'll say with horror movies right you kind of know what you got you're going to get from a lot of these and he really wanted to lean on the the like family drama you know grief uh, you know, passing on things to to the next generation kind of angle of this script. Uh, and that was uh, where he took, you know, a lot of his uh, personal info, you know, inspiration for this movie from is more on that, that human side of this kind of horror equation rather than on the horror side with people involved. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when an A24 logo pops up on screen, I always get a bit excited because I know it's going to be weird. Yeah. And and so, you know, at the beginning of this pops up A24, I'm like, okay, so this is probably going to be relatively low budget. It's going to be interesting. And yeah, I mean, he shot this for what, about $10 $10 million. I think it was filmed entirely in, in Utah and, uh, or, or certainly the, the locations were, and they are stark and interesting. And, you know, speaking of interesting, the cast that he gets, you know, Tony Collette, uh, Gabriel Byrne, you know, Alex Wolf, uh, and Dowd. And then this comes out early June, June 8th, 2018, and $10 million budget, $83 million at the box office. So just an all-out hit for A24. In fact, it was their biggest film until everything, everywhere, all at once. You know, this comes out to to really strong critical reviews as well. So like Rolling Stone is like basically praises Tony Collette's performance, saying that it is like the performance of the career. Um, she takes us inside a breakdown in flesh and spirit and shatters what's left of our nerves. New York Times says watching the movie uh, sometimes through your fingers is an ordeal of the best kind. The really big thing that happens is um, Martin Scorsese notices this film. And then he helps promote Ari Aster's next film, which is Midsommar, which, you know, really sort of cemented him as this rising star in this subgenre, let's call it, of elevated horror. And I, I think that all of that kind of bears out in the Rotten Tomato score, 90%. Interestingly enough, 7.3 on IMDb. So again, like with us, we get this kind of disparity between the Rotten Tomato score and the IMDb score, because this is not an easy movie to watch. This is uh, even at times a complicated movie and difficult movie to watch. Um, so I've got to ask, Michael, are you happy that you watched this movie? I am really, really glad I watched this because I would never have noticed this. I wouldn't have picked up on this movie in a million years. So like this forced me to watch it and I'm really glad I did. So I, I there was so much about this, like so many surprises uh, from cinematography, music, acting, the writing, the the different plot twists. So no, I, I I'm super glad I, I watched it. That might not add up to this being my favorite movie of all time, but I am super glad I, I watched it. How about you, Chris? Oh, I'm I'm delighted. Uh, I mean, I I think this is one of those things that going into uh, I had high expectations for, and um, you know, especially after like I said, waiting for months and months to actually get a chance to watch this, uh, and those were all uh, exceeded. And and I will say, compared to um, you know some of the other movies where there's interesting stuff that happens, th- this is a movie that never fails to engage you, and um, you know it keeps tense and scary and all the right kind of stuff throughout. So I was delighted uh, to have, have seen this uh, Evan for you rewatching this uh, still enjoyable. Uh, extra enjoyable. Um, like a couple of the movies that we've watched before us and exorcist definitely come to mind here uh, for Scaretober specifically, this movie really benefits for rewatching, there is so much layered in to this film. The in in the the frames of the actual film itself that you don't catch the first time around, in the dialogue, in the way that the the music works, and then after 
you do some research on kind of the the culty stuff that's happening in it and then see how Arie Aster brought some of those things to to bear in the film um it is it is just a, an absolute feast so Big, big thumbs up. Delighted to rewatch this. I, I am very excited to talk to you guys about it and to see how many dots we can help each other connect. Uh, so why don't we take a quick intermission and then we can start connecting dots. Well, for those of you listening, spoilers ahead. I don't want to ruin anything if you have not seen this movie. Uh, and this is definitely a movie that I think is probably best seen uh, without having anything spoiled for you. It's certainly more fun. Uh, but uh, if you're going to be listening to us talk about it, here it comes. So uh, this movie uh, takes place after the death of Annie's mother. Uh, Annie and her family begin to experience increasingly disturbing events. Uh, and as these events start to take a psychological toll on the family, it starts to emerge that there seems to be a malevolent purpose behind everything that's going on. So uh, on a lot of these movies that we've watched for Scaretober, we've talked a lot about uh, the pacing. Like, how did the pacing work in this movie? Like, did that draw you more into the story? Uh, tell me your thoughts about how it felt as you watched it. Well, this is one of those movies to me that owes so much to The Exorcist in that you need to earn the horror. You spend a lot of time with the characters uh, in this film and weird things happen, but it's like little things, just like The Exorcist. And then it's the little things that help really uh, execute, let's say, the big things. And so I like I'm a big fan of this kind of horror. I really like taking the time to create that connection with character. And I think some people might find this pacing slow, but for me, it is really, really pitch perfect and serves to draw me much more deeply into the story than I would with just, you know, let's say uh, uh, this is going to sound awful, but like a standard horror movie where it's just like, OK, let's have our, you know, scare right off the, the jump. And now let's meet the sexy people and we're just going to kill them. And that's fine. This is really like this really drags you in. Yeah, I think that the pacing here is incredible, but I'm going to say it's a little bit different from what we watched before, because here there are subtle breadcrumbs throughout. Everything builds up and then later you realize, oh, snap, like that thing built up to that thing to, to that thing. When we talk about something like a slower pace in The Exorcist, this kind of like where I really pointed out, like I really believe it helped to set the stage for movies 50 years later, but it didn't execute on that thing as well. because. There, there were some things that, that felt a little bit more random to me. But here, everything leads to the next thing. And when you look at it later, you go like, oh, that is nuts. Like all the individual things that they do has a purpose because it fits into the the sort of the, the culmination of everything in the end. So for me, the pacing was incredible. Um, it's a different type of movie from what we watched last week with, with us, where there was a huge action element. And that requires a different type of pacing. It requires by definition a lot of things going on this is a different type of movie and, and i thought that it worked beautifully uh, i'll say that the one thing too that's really interesting about the pacing of this movie um and how the this you know story is impacted by it is i, I think in our you know your typical movie okay there's a little girl who's weird uh, and is clearly something not quite right with uh and normally that builds you know over the course of the movie to something bad happening with that little girl. Whereas in this movie, 30 minutes into that movie, that little girl is dead and gone. And you're now dealing with a family in grief. So you kind of get this like almost like, you know, bait and switch or something 30 minutes into the movie where um, you have this kind of like building tension, a number of like really creepy moments in that first 30 minutes after the mom dies and whatever. And then Charlie's dead. And you're not sure where this movie is going. I kind of find mm -hmm. it's almost like that first big hill on a roller coaster where you kind of like kind of come down and it's flat before you build back up. And I found that was a really interesting um, 
you know, effect that it had on me watching it for the first time, because I wasn't, I didn't know all of a sudden what was happening with this movie. Whereas, you know, kind of, kind of what Evan said before, like in your typical, you know, possession or whatever kind of movie, you're like, well, it's probably that person and it's going to get worse. And then they have to fight the evil. In this case, you're like, oh, that person's dead. And I don't know what's happening. And that pacing is really weird because you've got 30 minutes where you're like, um, so what is happening? And you almost kind of like are trying to hook on to things again because you're not sure what direction the movie is going, which I found really disconcerting, confusing, but in a kind of enjoyable way because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know where we were headed from here. And that was really nice. Like I found that to be. Yeah, that feels like it is part and parcel with the film itself. Like that feels so deliberate on Astor's part to make you like the family be like, I don't know what is happening anymore. I am trying to latch on to things and that's exactly what they do. So, I mean, just a sign of, of really, really excellent craftsmanship. Well, that's a great point, Evan, because I mean, Ari Aster, uh, when he talked about his intention for this movie, he talked about it as wanting to make a, a conspiracy movie, but told from the perspective of the people being conspired against. Uh, and so you're not in on it. And I found that that reset after Charlie dies to be like, Okay, hold on. What is happening? Uh, and so, as as viewers, we kind of discover along with the Graham family, like, oh, there's some stuff happening, and there's some weird people, and we don't know what's happening. Uh, so, there's a lot of um, ambiguity and uncertainty kind of cooked into the the viewing experience as a viewer. Uh, like, what was that like for for maybe you, Michael, especially watching it for the first time? The thing that resonated more for me was just the family grief. These were people, real people who had suffered a lot. So the conspiracy thing may have been a thing at the very end where you go, oh, right, this thing led to that thing, to, which led to that thing. But what I really liked was that before he he kind of made it into a horror movie, because that was an, another thing that he talked about, he originally wrote it as a, as a pure family drama, family grief story, and then found the horror angle. Like that is probably what I connected to more. And I think more to the re-watching point, these are things that you can see later and go like, oh yeah, you can see how everyone were manipulated uh, at each stage to to lead to something else. And I think it's incredibly powerful in a second watching, but my first one, the, the just the family uh, drama, family relationships, that's what really connected to me. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Michael. It's, it's like you said um, earlier on that there are all these breadcrumbs. And, you know, to, to Chris's point, you've got this sort of ambiguity and uncertainty. And yet when you do a rewatch of this film, because of these breadcrumbs, you realize that everything is absolutely inevitable, which is kind of heartbreaking but also like I, as a writer, I'm so in awe of the, just like the clockwork uh, of this, just the machinery of this movie, the, uh, the, the story machine is so beautifully constructed. It is exquisite. It is a beautiful little Swiss watch that terror <laughs> that terrifies you when it goes off. Yeah. It's the worst cuckoo <laughs> clock ever. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's something about, you know, uh, to your point, Michael, the first time you watch this movie, it's it's not to unravel a mystery uh, because, you know, you have those performances and you have that grief and those things that you can relate to in people. Uh, but I found at the end of the first watching, there's still a lot I didn't understand, you know, because of that, like, whoa, what just happened? Hold on. Where did we just wind up? And especially, you know, through that last kind of act, that last third where you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is really building up ahead of steam. But I really didn't mind the uncertainty or the kind of the like, oh, I've definitely missed a lot of stuff in this movie because I loved that feeling of being like, oh, this has been happening the whole time. 
and I've missed it. And even if I go back and rewatch this, I feel like there's a whole world that was happening around this movie that makes perfect sense. But maybe I'll just never see. Like, I felt like this this plot Mm -hmm. against them was so complete and thorough. But, and I got that and I got that at the end of the first watching and I didn't mind not understanding it. Then I went back and <laughs> rewatched it a bunch just for to fill it in. Right. right. I, I think this is this is the, an incredibly important point. Like when we've talked in the past about like a movie that benefits from rewatching, there's a fine balance between maybe you didn't get that much of it the first time versus later it builds versus no, no, no. You get a full fill the first time and then later you go like, oh, snap, there was all this stuff going on. This, I think, is in the category of the latter to say this was entirely fulfilling the first watch. Uh, And then I can see just like finding more and more things, which is very different from like, oh, no, no, you you have to watch it eight times and then it'll all be revealed to you. It's like that that seems like a lot of investment. This, I think, is all there uh, at the first viewing and you go like, oh, this is incredible. And then there's even more to dig into. Yeah, I, I, I found this was never a movie that failed to entertain me f- for the sake of making a point or having something interesting to do. Or like it was like there might be interesting stuff or having a point, but I was never not entertained uh, in the most scary, awful way possible. <laughs> uh, so I, I think, you know, to, to exactly what you're saying there, Michael, about like what what keeps you interested in the first thing? Like, I mean, especially Tony Collette's performance gets called mm. out in this and, and and i'm curious how um you know the performances here helped you you know both connect to the characters engage with the narrative uh you know keep keep you you know interested and engaged throughout this movie uh, as you know you go through these roller coasters of of kind of grief with the family and this is such an interesting case study as a as a film because it is basically like a chamber piece there are not a lot of characters really there are some crowd scenes but really like aside from from some of the horror stuff like you could this could be a play you know like and and still be with four four characters five characters exactly and still be so effective like so incredibly effective. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if someday there's like hereditary opening in the West end of London kind of thing, come see the show. But the, the thing that I find so extraordinary about these performances, um, one, I mean, they are all so good and have a lot of range and are so believable, but also they are so separate. It is really fascinating to me to see like Tony Collette just giving it or Alex Wolf just giving it. And yet everyone seems so isolated from everyone else in the film. All of these characters are living their own private islands of grief and uh, are in that kind of fishbowl that you talked about, Chris, where it's like you believe that there's a whole world happening outside them, but they are these, they are an isolated family and they are isolated from themselves within that family. And that is such an incredible tightrope to walk of this depth of emotion uh, and this, this sort of ironclad solitude that happens. Um, so, I mean, I, I've just, I'm so impressed by that. Yeah. I, I really respect movies that don't spoon feed you things because there's a lot of things that kind of come uh, out as you watch it. So in the beginning, they're very restrained. They, they don't say a lot. They don't act a lot of emotion. And then little by little, you understand why, like what they've gone through when she, when the, the mother, the uh, Tony Collette character talks about her sleepwalking the first time in the most oh, rational, yeah. oh, here's the thing that happened. And I, you know, like, I, I can't believe why they, they still hold it against me type of thing. Like there's so much that, that just kind of like, whoa, okay. So now I understand why, where so much of this comes from. So when they have the big blow up at, at one of the dinner tables, um, uh, after this horrible incident, uh, it's like, okay, this all makes sense. And Gabriel Burns acting up to that point has been so restrained and, and maybe not like with that much, um, I don't know, range all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I get 
you. I get you as a character and everything that you've gone through. And I think that just adds so much to all the, the actors, everything that they do and, and what they put into it. Yeah, I I I, um, I saw an interview with Ari Aster talking about getting Tony Collette and explaining to her what he needed. And he was like, I was just asking for somebody to go full kamikaze on this performance. And I like that is definitely the sense that you get of just like there is there can't have been much fuel left in the tank at the end no, of a day okay. of filming for, for most of these folks. Like she definitely leaves it there. And I, I think the amazing part of a number of her, her scenes are where she has to do, you know, like a sudden 180 pivot, like when she becomes possessed by Charlie and is suddenly Charlie in the middle of that seance or when she, you know, watches uh, her husband burn to death and then suddenly is possessed again. Mm-hmm. And it's just those moments where she has to turn 180. You know, the, the grief that underlies all of this, I think she plays up really well. I will also say, like, you know, um, Alex Wolf, I find I find Peter, the character to be hair pullingly frustrating but like mm-hmm. alex wolf you mean a 16 year or 17 year old boy yeah a, a totally <laughs> yeah. like disinterested teenager yeah but like his performance especially when you hear what was going on again like leaving it all out on the table the 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 scene where he gets possessed in the class and smashes his face against the desk he was saying to to um or he asked her like I want to actually break my nose in this scene and Ari asked was like Whoa. oh chill out dude you don't need to do that we'll pad the desk like we're going to pad the desk. You can smash your face, but we're going to pad the desk. But they only padded part of the desk and he missed and he actually dislocated <gasps> his jaw in that scene what? while he smashes it. So when he's like flying backwards and like and all smashed up, like he actually dislocated his jaw from smashing oh, it in. Man. Uh, so like just just the dedication of all these folks to bring the, you know, bring the pain both both like, you know, literal in terms of physical performances but also you know the the emotional trauma that seems to underlie all this is just uh, i don't know i found a lot and and also kudos to like and dowd for being and dowd because she's yeah. great in everything and i think the perfect choice for for that you know evil doer <laughs> on the side <laughs> um, you, you know now i have a interesting flashback because evan's reaction about like his uh <gasps> Uh, my view of that was a little bit like, should I be sadder and more upset about what Chris just said, which is exactly what the the mom character said. What Andy says at the beginning. Yeah. You feel whatever you need to feel, Michael. Right. Like that. Yes. That was upsetting that he got hurt. And Evan's reaction was a little bit more human. So there you go. Good example. Okay. So you're, you're Gabriel Byrne in this. Okay. Or, or maybe Charlie. But (laughs) (laughs) well, Evan, I think that might actually be a good segue because I I would love to talk about the sound design in this movie. Uh, But maybe it's time to take a quick intermission. And when we come back, uh, we can talk about all the clucking that goes on. So amusing story that I heard about all the clucks in this movie. Uh, Apparently, a number of movie theaters, when folks would come to rewatch this movie, had to ask people to not cluck throughout the movie. Uh, So funny. So, I mean, there's a number of things that get done in this movie in terms of sound design that just absolutely ramp up the creepy factor. Uh, Like. Uh, how much did sound play out in this movie for you in terms of like adding to that creep? I think the, so if I include sound to be everything from how they recorded the, the voices, background sound and the music, like I have to include the music. I was blown away by this movie, not just because how they use sound, but also how they use silence because you would have these crazy buildups and then all of a sudden be nothing and be like, wow, that silence was just as impactful as this cacophony of crazy sounds uh, a second earlier. So I, I think... She's saying it was just as impactful as a telephone pole to the head? I would say that it was as impactful as the absence of a head after that. Yeah. I have to... <laughs> uh, I have to agree with you, Michael. The scoring in this is so 
tense and intense. There's so much uh, done with like drones and uh, like bass clarinets and um, even like almost like bassy heartbeat kind of sounds and wub wub wubbing throughout. Wub, wub, yeah. wubs, exactly. Yeah. Like, like the dubsteps, but classical. And one of the things that I thought was really cool was uh, when I started to do a little bit of research into Paimon, the um, uh, king of, of hell or prince of hell that, that the cult is is um, summoning via uh, Charlie and, and um, Peter, is that the, that in the uh, heralding of Paimon, he is supposed to come uh, heralded by symbols and um, uh, like a rumbles and drones and all of those and trumpets and uh, all of these things are heard in the score in different ways. So that's like that's really cool. Like it's like okay, Ariaster, you like you did your research. One one thing about that is like I I wrote down wow, like the the droning synth like uh, sounds are incredible, and then I realized like this guy Colin Stetson, he plays the saxophone, and he is this experimental jazz uh, saxophone player who's done all these things. And you go, oh wow, those are real sounds. I'm so used to just coming up with whatever I can and modulating and doing these things. It's like, no, 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 here's a, here's a musician who starts with an organic, real sound and has turned it into this. It was like, it just blew me away because exactly what you said, these droning things, the pulsating ones, I was like, this is the best stuff I've heard in a very, very long time. And then to realize that it's no, he's just done this organically with real instruments. It's like, okay, that, that, next level yeah i i i found that like some sort of pavlovian dog i was having immediate fear reactions anytime i started hearing music uh and just how well that sound design is baked in and to your point michael they do a great job of uh, like early on when annie sees her mom in the shadows of this like music building up and then instantly when the lights go on she disappears and the music stops and suddenly you're back to silence and you're like okay i feel safe again uh but in other scenes they'll use it in the reverse where suddenly it's silent and then something happens and it's like the reverse light switch where suddenly music is now back and you know something bad is happening and just that that shift from you know safety to fear or fear to safety is what kind of ties into that pace we were talking about throughout. We were just like, oh God, and it always pays off. And that's the thing is it might take five minutes of building up, but the second you hear that music coming, you know there's there's something coming. And and I'll just say the, the other thing from a sound design perspective, um, there's a number of things which, you know, we we're talking about breadcrumbs and rewatching. There's a number of things that you miss really easily on a first watch um like you know and it could partly be watching it at home without you know surround sound you know speakers like you get in a in a theater or whatever but like you only kind of get the scene where annie is like in the closet doing the 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 summoning the seance summoning of charlie or the the piano chord being torn out of the piano when peter wakes up upstairs there's a lot of footsteps upstairs in the attic when they come home at some point like there's a lot of stuff that's really really easy to miss because they want to have it you know in the shadows but i will say the other thing that is just downright frightening frightening throughout this movie is charlie's cluck yeah yeah, something that my son does all the time. So today he was downstairs building Lego and just going. And I was like, oh, Pyman. Yeah, it it is um, somehow one of those really I, I don't know how that little like cluck thing becomes so frightening. And yet it is so incredibly effective. And it's also such a really great connect the dots thing between that malevolent presence now being present again when suddenly it comes back and like it's just such an effective use of sound design not only to be frightening but to connect the dots narratively to other things going on yeah it's percussive too which is what makes it jarring you know jarring exactly but it's interesting because what you said earlier about traditional horror movies 
you would think, oh, because it's this one person, therefore this person must be the malevolent thing. Here, I didn't actually think that there was a malevolent intent because there's nothing to to kind of like clue me to that. You instead just go like, I don't know what the heck is going on. And then at the end you go, oh snap. Like there are all these things that kind of come together. But as I was watching it, I never thought there was a malevolent intent. I just thought this is creepy as heck. And I don't know what that, you know, what is going on. Yeah. And, and I think maybe this is a good opportunity to segue too, in terms of, uh, the, you know, cinematography and that same tying in of, you know, do you catch that malevolence on the first pass? What do you notice about this film from, you know, the way it's filmed, uh, in terms of building that, that creepiness and, and, and evil into, the movie. Well, I, the big thing that that I took away from the cinematography is that it feels very much like we as viewers are part of this um, voyeuristic cult watching things, that we are part of that outside world watching this inside family, especially because of the way that it uses uh, really slow pans and, um, you know, these these kind of push-ins and it gives that odd sense that the family the 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 grahams are are on like they're almost kind of like like annie's miniatures that you're watching them and i mean that's made fairly explicit uh from the beginning of the of the movie where you zoom in on the um well first you're looking at the treehouse, so you the the opening shot is where everything's going to end in the in the end. Then you do this sort of slow, creepy pan, like somebody's turning their head, kind of ghost like, over to the model of the house, push in on Peter's room, and then you actually have Gabriel Byrne walk into the room. So you have this sense of being. Um, complicit in the voyeurism that is happening, the, the, the gaze that is happening and that these people are kind of on a stage and are these weird little miniatures They're being manipulated on stage, right? They're, They're being, being manipulated. manipulated. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so like th- that was the thing that, that I really took away from, from this viewing is just being really, really conscious of that, um, which I thought was excellent. I think the the cinematography was throughout like it was excellent. The slow pacing was so respectful to the to the viewer. Like this was all about like let's take our time, let's do this thing, let's not do crazy cuts back and forth. Uh, the panning, the zooming in, the close ups, all of this really helped to to build to the tension. Uh, as opposed to you know when you do this thing to kind of show an object and go oh. That must be very important. I must remember that later. It's like, no, no. There were so many things that just kind of like panned slowly, maybe in the background, the symbol, this, that. And and later go, oh, snap, like all that fit together. Uh, I really, really ad- uh, admired and enjoyed the, the slow pacing of camera movement, uh, sideways panning, zooming. Like I just thought it was brilliant. And yet you still have those percussive accents, let's call them, kind of the equivalence of like Charlie's Clucks of like some of my absolute favorite shots in this movie where it's like you see the house at night and then like snap and it's like somebody just popped the lights on and it's nothing's moved but now it's daytime or you know and you you see that with with you know Peter going from like you know a a table to to class or things like that these these percussive jumps are are so freaking good couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more because that and that is why it works. Because you've had ninety uh, percent of the movie is slow paced, gradual, and then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. Whether it's like him driving in the car and you hear the the clock or like something exactly like you said, that's what makes it so powerful. Because it's like up to this point we haven't had that, and all of a sudden, it is so disturbing and so jarring. Well, and it's it's the it's the visual equivalent of what we talked about with the music, right? Where the music mm. shows up all of a sudden and you are afraid. He does the same thing with light and dark, right? And in the same way that Annie flicks that light switch 
on in the beginning and the scary mom apparition goes away and the scary music goes away to your point, Evan, it's that kind of sudden, like those match cuts where it's like, all right, house in the day, house at night. The difference that you notice, especially on a rewatch is how much stuff is lurking in the shadows. Right. Oh God. And, yes. and exactly. Right. Uh, and so you just, in that same way, when you get those like light switch match cuts of, to your point, like Peter in the day to suddenly Peter at school, you're like, Oh, we just, uh Oh, you know, like something isn't going to go right here because we just had one of those. Right. And so you, you have that same kind of, um, I don't know, like I just something in the back of your brain is like, uh Oh, something's coming again. And especially if you hear those other elements tie in, uh, just the way those cuts and the way the, the darkness is used in a number of these scenes to hide things or like obscure things just out of frame or things like that, where you're like, okay, it builds on that conspiracy that's happening just out of what I can see. And I'm getting to see more than the family. But to your point, I can feel that manipulation of of those folks, those dolls in the dollhouse going on, but I don't know why. Right. And that's for for me, the really fun part is you know something's bad and you don't know what it's going to be. And it always pays off in a way that is just creepy, 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 creepy. So I mean, we we kind of talked about stuff hiding in the dark and, you know, uh, you know, audit auditory clues of things going on and just all the stuff that's hidden on the first watch. So we've already talked about it a little bit, but like how much does hereditary, you know, gain? How much of a better understanding do you get and appreciate this movie on a rewatch? I think it's, you know, that inevitability that really comes down to it. It's, you know, we've talked about these breadcrumbs and you just get a real sense that everything here has been laid out, that uh, a plan is in effect and the machine is going to crush the Grahams. Um, the thing that really, for for lack of a better pun, struck me was uh, seeing on the rewatch, the symbol of uh, Pyman on the pole that decapitates Charlie. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, okay. So at some point, something like this was going to happen. Like this is, this is preordained. It's like the, the classics or literature teacher says like, um, you know the 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 murder was commanded by the gods it's a, and and you know basically uh you know in his his sort of lecture on hercules kind of gives up the the whole movie like like it's like they refuse to look at all the signs that are being handed to them and yeah that's a that's what the family does too so for me i think this movie is thoroughly satisfying at the first watching and I think that's a super important thing to tell people to say, like, this movie stands uh, on its own two feet incredibly well. It's a little bit like, the uh, you know, if you look at back at the, the Sixth Sense movie and you say, well, you look back later and go, the importance of the color red. And you go, oh, look at that. And you can trace it and you can see all of these things. Yes, but the first viewing was incredibly powerful. So I think it's the same here to say this is a thoroughly rewarding experience on its own if you want to go back later i think it rewards it but it's certainly not required uh, to kind of get that first thing versus some of the other things maybe some other movies where you kind of only get the full picture if you watch it the second or third time this i think you get the uh, a full serving the first time around yeah but chris how many naked people did you see in the woods the second time around yeah well i, I the, th- the thing i actually appreciated more so, uh, number one, I think one of the things that I have not said clearly enough is on the first watching, this is a genuinely scary movie. Like, for me, the level of genuinely scary is I watched it at night with the lights off and no one else around. And when I finished, I was checking the dark corners of my house on the way to bed because I saw, thought something was lurking there. Most horror movies for me are like, OK, that was a little tense while I watched it. And now it's over. And I'm going to go eat some candy and whatever. Do, 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 do. Like this bothered me. This stayed with me. So I think to Michael's point, this is great on a first watch. It's very scary. Great. Rewatching this movie the next day because I really liked it, uh, maybe with a few more lights on. Uh, but 
rewatching this movie the next day was a little bit like watching a different movie for me because suddenly everything throughout has different context. So like in the beginning, when Charlie is asking Annie, who's going to take care of me when you die? It's suddenly a very different question. And you also realize she's asking that because the, the grandma had been her, you know, demonic tender and you know asking this question of her mom well who's going to take care of me when you die it's like because you're gonna die <laughs> you know it's framing it in, and you're like oh or the note from the mom which sounds like a lovely note of like hey my beautiful annie you know i'm sorry for all the things i couldn't tell you and don't despair your losses which sounds like it's like a mom who knew that she was at the end of her life but in reality it's this like no no the world's going to be great when we summon this demon so suddenly it's just an entirely different movie that you're seeing the second time through because you know where it goes. And then I was just like, I was in heaven rewatching this. So for me, the rewatchability is not just like, it's fun to pick up on the like, oh, that happened there and this happened there. Like, I felt like I was watching a different movie because suddenly knowing what it is, I'm, I'm like, oh, that's not a, that's not Charlie. That's a demon. That's payment in the wrong body. Not just their kid. I think that there's such a, a cool moment in talking about that recontextualization, Chris, um, when Peter is sitting alone outside at lunch and uh, Joan is across the street screaming. screaming, I cast you out, I cast you out, you know, Peter. And when you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, that crazy seance lady is there like trying to protect Peter and you realize the second time when you watch it she's like no she's actually trying to banish Peter the the kid's soul so that uh, payment can take over his body and uh, be summoned into our material plane and uh, I don't know rain rain terror down upon the world yeah so one thing I actually I wonder if this was just me so I, I want to ask the two of this question she has a pretty interesting speech at, at the end around like you know you're 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 all right now. You're you're payment, one of the eight kings of hell. We've given you all this like this healthy male host. And she asks for in return, like we want to learn all of these things. Tell tell us all of these things. Did you get the sense that that's like the dumbest thing in the world? Like he is somehow going to help them, or he's he now going to turn on them? Like I thought it was the most naive thing in the world. I mean, making any pact with a devil, I'm sure is the most awful naive thing in the world for a, what could go a wrong world to do if yeah if if in fact you know the that demon sort of thing does exist like it, it seems like you are are definitely uh probably in over your head if you still have a head and so um yeah man i agree with you it does seem Super naive, but uh, people love power. So I don't know. Yeah, so I, capitalism is the evil again. I, I, jeez, I, uh, I definitely, I think, I think there's different ways that you can take the reaction at the end too, because he seems bewildered, uncertain. And like, it's an interesting note to end on of like evil has been summoned to the world and, and you don't know which way it's going to go. Right. Um, so, and I think for me, that's, that's part of the joy of this is like, there's no cathartic ending. There's no, everybody gets saved or at least, you know, our hero gets away. You don't even know to, to that question, Michael, like, do the cultists end happy? Does anybody end happy? And probably not. I don't know. Like maybe they did get the good familiars that they were looking for. I don't know. But like, I think I like that the movie ends on that ambiguity because I don't know how else you would end this movie. Right. Like, I, I, I don't know what what's the happy. Maybe they get the riches and familiars and then rule over the world. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, give us the good familiars. I don't want one of those just, uh, you know, bargain basement rats. Give me. Give me a Jaguar. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that is uh, an interesting thing that I thought about differently on a rewatch 
uh, of this movie too was um, you know on the first playthrough there's there's notes of you know um, mental health and whether Annie's all together with it and and you know mental health issues that have gone in the family I think you can see things play out in um, Annie and her family's you know, interactions and relationships. I think the thing that's really interesting is as you watch this again, it suddenly gives you kind of a different view on the characters, you know, grief and mental health struggles and, and how that plays into the horror intention of a movie. So I'm curious how, how you felt those, those pieces came together for you in your, um, you know, watching of this movie. I think it's it's funny because when I was watching it the first time, I did I only thought the only person who had a mental health issue uh, was the mother. I didn't think about the grandmother. You, you said about like front and center. I didn't think she was front and center. I thought she was a footnote, and everything was focused on the the Tony Collette character. And you kind of see she has all these things, and they really kind of put the spotlight on her issues, her sleepwalking, her inability to to deal with certain things, and the pressure to to have a child. Uh, and it's only on re-watching and reading it and you kind of go, well, okay, well, hang on. Like this pattern around the her brother and exactly what you said, you know, put someone in uh, within him and it's like, oh, you mean like a demon and it didn't work and then she had to redo it. And like, there's all these other things. But the first viewing, I thought, if anything, it was just a Tony Collette character who had like any sort of meant. But it's called hereditary, Michael. It's called hereditary. Let me say it differently. At my first watching, I didn't pick up on any of these things other than the Tony Collette character watching it. Got it. So whatever the, the it could have been called like three days until Sunday. And I would not have picked up on anything different. Like it was just, I, I thought it was really cleverly staged to make it put the focus on this person and then, oh, snap. I, 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 one of the things that I found really interesting is obviously once you know, you know, to that, to that, like, you know, putting people inside of me thing about the brother. And obviously that's recontextualized when you're like, oh yeah, she was though. Right. But it's, I think that the interesting thing is there are these long threads of grief and trauma and mental health that clearly, go from well before this story started and lots of stories that happened that we never hear about that you can feel just in those interactions between everybody. And when Tony Collette loses it on uh, Peter at the dinner table over everything that's been going on and Peter turns it, turns it around. By the way, one of my favorite lines uh, in, in the movie for me is that face on your fucking face. <laughs> when she's losing it on him. Uh, and and like he turns around, he's like, well, you know, are you taking responsibility? You sent her to the thing. And you can just feel the 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 pain that's kind of being transmitted through this family of like a woman whose mom kept all these secrets and had this horrible stuff going on, who's now in some way keeping secrets from her son. I actually read a really interesting, there's a, a Ari Aster um, AMA uh, that, talks about somebody asked him a question about um the sleepwalking uh stuff that goes on in the movie uh and you know whether there's something there uh and um Ari Aster basically talked about like I love the idea of like divine intervention that some part of Annie knows that everything going on is wrong but she's just so unable to deal with it in the waking world and like come to terms with the stuff that she kind of must know is happening, that the only way she could actually try to do anything right was in her sleepwalking. And so that like trying to light her kids on fire is actually secretly kind of her, trying to save the world, trying to save them from a horrible Yeesh. fate. Right. And it's that. And and I think that's the thing is um, part of his writing uh, this. And, uh, you know, he talks about this in some interviews is the idea of like, every time we have these, these family dramas where there's grief and loss and whatever, it serves as a, you know, a catalyst for change and improvement. We all kind of end happier. And he's like, but that doesn't happen for everybody. Right. There's generations of trauma that get passed on and sometimes something happens and it makes it worse for people. Uh, and 
that happens too. And why don't we see that movie? And he's like, now I couldn't make that movie as just a regular drama because good luck getting financing or anybody to go see it, but I could make it as a horror movie. And so it's just that sense of like, yeah, this happens to real people and we never talk about it and we should talk about it. And also demons possess possess everyone. So it goes terribly wrong at the end. But I, I, I thought it was a really fascinating just lens to put on this of like, it doesn't end okay for everybody. And why don't we talk about that? You know, you know, what, one thing uh, that we also don't talk about um, is the, uh, playing Six Degrees of Lost Boys with this film. So, yeah. How are we going to get there this week? OK, Evan? Uh, I think I've I figured it out. It's a little bit of a stretch and we actually have to sort of like six degrees of Kevin Bacon this. So um, Lost Boys was directed by Joel Schumacher. I hate the start already, but go on. OK, yep. Joel Schumacher directed Eight Millimeter with Nicolas Cage. Okay. Nicolas Cage was in Pig, which is a fantastic movie that people slept on. And um, if you missed it, go out and see Pig. It is great. But his co star in Pig is Alex Wolf, who is in Hereditary. You got there. There we go. Congratulations. Well done. Uh, I mean, it's not as easy as all of our previous episodes, but no, it's not not directly referenced in the film and or, uh, hey, the lead in that is the uh, dad of the lead in this, you know, yeah. Um, well, I think that brings us to uh, perhaps the most important part of the episode, which is just to ask, uh, hey, for folks who haven't seen this movie, would you recommend this? I mean, if you're a horror movie fan, yeah, go watch, watch this movie. This is a scary movie and this is a very good movie. This is a very, very good piece of cinema. This is a really artistic, well-crafted piece of film. If you like horror movies or if you just like real movie movies, go, go see this movie. So I, I agree, but, but with the asterisk to say, Horror movies are such a broad genre. It doesn't really, it's not a super helpful one because it can cover like zombie movies. It can cover slasher, this, that. This is a super scary, suspenseful, creepy movie. So if you're into that, like this is one of the best uh, ever. If you like your horror movies to be a little bit more like a monster and things and jump scares, this is a different type of movie. But like, I think that this is brilliant. I, I think that, Anyone who likes the sort of creepy, suspenseful, eerie things, uh, this is a you, you should not miss this. Yeah, I I a hundred percent agree. I mean, I will straight up say this is probably my favorite movie that we have watched for you know our podcast all along. I really, really, really liked this movie. Um, you know, sure, there's going to be people who don't like it because it is scary and creepy. Uh, I mean, I think that is kind of the nature of horror movies, but like, this is one that is like you said, Michael, it's not scary because stuff jumps out. It's scary because it's upsetting and unnerving and creepy. And like it, when you feel like you are being plotted against by the movie and conspired against by the movie, because it doesn't twist and turn the way you expect it to, it unsettles you. Uh, and I, that was just, a feeling that I really enjoyed is just not quite knowing where this was going to go, even though it uses, um, you know, familiar tropes and storylines, possession. And sure, you can go back to like Rosemary's Baby and other sorts of stories that have had similar types of storylines. It definitely stands on those shoulders, like you were saying, Evan, but like it does it different. And that feels good because you don't know what to expect. Uh, most importantly, when are you going to watch this movie again? Probably next year. You know, I've I've watched it. I've watched it, uh, you know, twice within a span of a year. Uh, not quite Chris's like three times within 24 hours. But uh, yeah, I'll probably watch this in the next year or so again. Uh, I, I really like this movie. Probably not again, um, unless an opportunity came up because of a thing. Um, so I was, I was going to make fun of it to say, like, you know, you used to word uh, enjoy uh I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> uh, I will not seek this out. I think that this was very powerful. I'm glad I watched it, but it's not a feeling I 
will seek out again. I would rather try to find it in another movie. But um, but if someone said, "Hey, here's this thing. You want to watch it together?" I'd be like, "Absolutely. I'll, I would want to watch it together because there's so much to talk about after, and that would be the most satisfying thing ever." Uh, yeah, I can tell you that um, I have rewatched this or watched this three times uh, in the last uh, week or so, uh, and I am still interested in watching it because there are so many of those threads of like, who was a cultist? Oh, yeah, those little see. Are there more scenes where the payment light thing happens and stuff happens? Like there's so many little threads to pull on. I think Ari Aster basically said something along the lines of like, I'm going to put 200 clues into this movie and expect that our audiences are going to pick up on about 30 of them. Uh, and I feel like I've still only got to like, you know, not I've got 99 clues, but payment ain't one, I guess. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like I'm maybe even halfway there. So this is something that I'm excited to revisit before too long. And I think, you know, to your point, Evan, this is going to be something that goes into the, you know, regular catalog for me, you know, when I'm in a mood for a scare and need to turn the lights off, I don't know if it can duplicate it, but this is definitely on a short list of movies for me that were genuinely scary. And again, that genuinely scary for me is it carried over after I finished watching. And that does not happen often for me. Uh, you know, jump scares and whatever aside, this is definitely something that stayed with me. And I am very excited to revisit exactly for the reason why Michael doesn't want to is I enjoy that just creepy crawly feeling that this movie did oh so well and i think that's a good place to call it for this week uh we all managed to keep our heads through this episode uh but that's what we thought about hereditary so uh, we'd love to know what you thought about Hereditary or any other movie that we've watched. Uh, you can always email us at HowDidYouMissThis at Gmail. And you can send us any thoughts or questions that you might have or anything you might want us to cover. Uh, if you enjoy, enjoy what we're doing here, take a second to rate or review. Subscribe even on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, and next week, uh, we'll be back on Halloween when we're going to be wrapping up Scaretober by watching... Halloween to see if this classic horror movie lives up to its name or whether it should stay missed. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you then. Leave a message at the beep. We'll be right back. Evan, you could make a lot of money selling that voice. Hey, big boy. We'll be right back. (laughs) 